I'm Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and welcome to PathPod News Edition. In this episode, we'll hear Dr. Meredith Fibben of Weill Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian, interview Dr. Sanjay Muttipadier of the Cleveland Clinic about his recent publication on the lung pathology of COVID-19. You can find Dr. Pittman on Twitter at M-E-R-E-P-I-T-T and Dr. Mukhtipadie at SM Lung Path Guy. I'm very happy to welcome the creator and host of this episode. Dr. Pittman, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dr. Arnold. I'm so glad to be here and hosting this first episode. Well, Meredith, it's great to have you, and I'm very excited to hear your interview with Dr. Mukhtipadie. As you know, on PathPod, we like to talk about people's experiences in pathology and medicine. So why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in pathology? Well, when I went to medical school and I went to Washington University in St. Louis for med school, I thought I was going to be an internal medicine doctor, come back to South Carolina, set up my practice, you know, know everybody's families, their dogs, their kids, that just, you know, that's the kind of doctors I had known. Um, and so that's who I saw myself being. And then during second year of medical school, there was a really excellent year long pathology, um, course that ran with all the other courses and, you know, it was broken down by systems. And I just found that really fascinating. I didn't know anything about pathology. I didn't know pathology existed, but that elective or, or that course really piqued my interest. And so For third year of med school, we got to pick one elective, and I did a surge path elective, and I just kind of fell in love with it. I thought the attendings were, they were, they knew everything, or, you know, it seemed to me like they knew everything. They knew everything that was on the slide. They knew the way the patient must have presented. They knew you know, um, the molecular diagnostics, they knew how the patient needed to be treated. It was just this kind of like, this global view of medicine and this, and really, really diagnosing problems. And uh, I just loved that. I loved the kind of puzzle problem solving aspect of it. And they were also just really great people. Like they were interesting to talk to. The residents were lovely. And I just thought I've really found my I've really found my people. It was hard though. Um, I really struggled with deciding not to see patients because I loved patients and I I love people. And so um, deciding that that wasn't who I was going to be was a big decision. Um, But I'm, you know, I'm just super happy as a pathologist. I'm so grateful that, that WashU had such a great pathology department for me to, to find, find my place. Oh, that's great. What got you interested in GI pathology? Huh, that's funny. So I tell all of my residents this because, you know, residents are always freaking out first and second year. Like, what am I going to do? I have to pick a specialty. If I don't decide now, I'll never get a fellowship. And um, my, <laughs> my program director, Dr. Phyllis Hutner, bless her heart. She was wonderful. The beginning of my third year of residency, she said, Meredith, you have got to pick a specialty because you have to apply for fellowships now. And I was like, but I like everything, Dr. Hutner. I just like, I'm so happy in pathology. I couldn't imagine losing any of it, if that makes sense. And so uh, I 
literally picked what I thought would be the broadest subspecialty there was. <laughs> um, because I was like, well, GI has liver and pancreas and gallbladder and all of the luminal tract. And it's not all cancer all the time. There's a lot of medical diseases. And I really did love liver pathology. Um, had a really excellent excellent liver attending at WashU and enjoyed interacting with the hepatologist. So I picked the broadest subspecialty I could um, and just went with it. And so, and I've been super happy. And so I just always tell my residents, if you like pathology and you're not a hundred percent sure, like what you want to be doing in 20 years, as long as you like looking at glass and, and diagnosing things, you're going to be happy in whatever you choose because you're going to be doing pathology. So that's what I did. And that's where I found myself. And it's great. It's worked out just fine. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. I think medical students and residents need to hear stories like that when they're thinking about their career choices. And I think the PathPod News Edition is a really interesting idea. Tell me what got you thinking about this. Well, I have always loved public radio. Um, I, I mean, I'm a pathologist, so I'm a nerd. Um, and even in high school, you know, I'd get in my car at the end of the day and I'd turn on my WEPR 90.1 FM in Greenville, South Carolina and listen to PRI's The World with Lisa Mullins. Like that was my afternoon listening on the way home. Um, and then I'll give a shout out to my, my old St. Louis station was KWMU. If anyone's listening, wants to donate there. Um, and now WNYC in New York. And I just think the, you know, the, the service they offer giving um, really uh, in-depth news reporting is important. Fact-based news reporting is important. But then they also provide, um, you know, they highlight stories about real people living in the cities where we live, you know, as your local news station. And I just thought, wouldn't that be, wouldn't it be neat if we could bring just a touch of that to pathology and start highlighting the people and the papers that are timely. Right now, everything's going to be dominated by coronavirus. But if this if this takes off and moving forward, you know, we'll be able to talk about other things in pathology that are newsworthy and important important discoveries across both anatomic and clinical pathology, and kind of giving a little bit of a news bent and public radio flavor that I thought would be fun. So we'll see what the listeners think. Well, I, I love the idea. And of course, you live in New York, so you have personal connections to the city. What would you like to share with the audience about that? Oh, uh, so we've been living in New York for a little over four years now. Um, my husband and I are both at Wild Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian on the Upper East Side. And as everyone knows, uh, it, New York City's really been the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States. And, um, you know, it, it's impossible to live there and it's impossible to live anywhere and not have your life changed. It's impossible to live in New York City and not just be fundamentally altered. The, the city is just shut down. Um, you know, usually in my apartment, there's this cacophony of traffic as people are trying to get on the, the FDR um, and it's just been silent. So I'm, I'm in an odd way missing the the booming radio car radios outside my window at night. Um, and it's, it's hard knowing that so many people are impacted. It's hard living with the fear of in and out of the hospital and in our apartment building, it's pretty much all physicians, you know, even when we're home, are we going to catch the virus just being at home? So 
and you know, I have a three and a half year old and she's, she knows there's a virus and she knows that we need to stay inside to stay safe. And that's really hard for her because, you know, she, she wants to see her school friends. She's used to going and doing something every day, just like everybody else. And so staying inside is difficult for her as well. And it, um, it's just, uh, it's just a scary time. And um, I, I'm really proud of um, all of the physicians in New York who have really stepped up to meet this challenge. Um, my husband <laughs> has been doing palliative care the past two weeks. That is not his specialty, but that's where they needed people and where he was reassigned. And that's been very draining for him, but something that I'm really proud of him being able to do and to help families through this difficult time. I appreciate, I know that clinicians, intensivists flew in from other parts of the country to come help New York City. And I, I think that is just really brave of doctors to do that, knowing that they're, they're putting themselves in possibly harm's way. Um, so I've just been, I've been really proud of my city um, and the response of of everyone from the physicians down to our very essential workers, um, you know, who are still serving food and helping us get groceries, um, you know, picking up our trash. Uh, it, it's, it's been really remarkable to see. And, and I'm proud. I'm proud of New York City right now. It really has been amazing to see the way so many things have come together and some of the opportunities that have come out of this crisis. And I, I think your interview is some, with Sanjay is a really great example of that. I think it's a really interesting topic and really timely. So, Yeah. And I, I, I think one of the things I loved about the interview um, is the fact that he was able to connect uh, with the people, with his co-authors via Twitter. And that's how they met. And I think that's really just perfect for the time we're living in right now. <laughs> It's, it's really incredible. So many, so many virtual interactions have sprung up. And of course, the CAP has had a big role in trying to provide resident education opportunities during this time. Oh, yeah. I cannot imagine being a resident or a medical student during this time. Um, you know, med students graduating early so that they can get on the wards and start helping. Um, my residents in New York, going from being pathology residents to working on the wards with patients. Uh, I think it's just, you know, everybody's, everybody's had to have a little shift in mindset of who we are and what we do and how we do it. And um, hopefully some really positive things will come out of it, um, including possibly more collaborations uh, with people that we may not have met before. So I, I think that's uh, something hopeful to look forward to. I certainly think we have that to look forward to. Well, thank you again for starting PathPod News Edition. Let's get to your interview with Sanjay. All right. Thanks so much. As the world grapples with almost 3 million confirmed cases of the novel coronavirus, pathologists are on the front lines of diagnosis in the clinical lab and at the microscope. While clinicians report damage to the lungs, liver, kidneys, and circulatory system, the devastating pulmonary damage appears to be the cause of death in the majority of cases. We have with us this morning Dr. Sanjay Mukhopadhyay, Director of Pulmonary Pathology at the Cleveland Clinic and author of a recent American Journal of Clinical Pathology article detailing the autopsy findings of two patients diagnosed with COVID-19. Dr. Mukhopadhyay, thank you so much for joining us. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Pittman, for having me on. This is really a, an honor. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. Thank you. Oh, we're so excited to have you. So I wanted to start out this morning by asking you, how did you become involved in these two cases from Oklahoma? Uh, yes, very interesting question. Many people have asked me that. It says, um, you know, COVID autopsies, Oklahoma, USA, and then it says Cleveland Clinic <laughs> below that. So what happened was that these um, autopsies were actually done at the um, Oklahoma Medical Examiner's Office by two of their forensic pathologists, Dr. Edena Stroberg and Dr. Eric Duval. So they are at the Medical Examiner's Office. And one of their colleagues, Dr. Lisa Burton, uh, knew me through Twitter. So she is also a forensic pathologist uh, and, and knows me because I you know, post educational lung things on Twitter. Uh-huh. So this is actually a very good plug for people who, uh, for academics who are wondering whether they should be on Twitter or not. <laughs> Excellent. It is, it's a huge, huge advantage of being out there and knowing, being known as, so you would be known as the GI person, I would be known as the lung person, you know, somebody else would be known as the heme person. And when they need, when people around the world need expertise, they, you know, they turn to people they know. And so that's what happened. So Dr. Burton re- reached out to me. I looked at, they sent me their lung slides from the autopsies. And I immediately recognized that there is that, you know, this has great value in the, you know, in the current pandemic, because there was nothing published on complete autopsies. And so then we wrote this paper up together. Wonderful. Well, I guess here would be a good time for me to ask you if you would mind giving us your Twitter handle so everyone can start following you. Oh, yeah. So my uh, Twitter handle is at SM. So that's from Sanjay Mukhopadhyay at SM Lung Path Guy. And it's all one one word. SM Lung Path Guy. SM Lung Path Guy. So everyone can go follow you as soon as they finish listening to our podcast. Excellent. So once you received those slides, can you describe for us what you identified in the microscopic sections of the lungs? Yes. So in case one, um, which was from an elderly gentleman who died after a short febrile illness without a known COVID diagnosis, um, I knew at the time I got the sections that they had done a postmortem swab and the postmortem swabs from the nasopharynx and lung were both positive for COVID. Okay. So I knew that at the time. I, I didn't go into it blinded. So I was expecting to see diffuse alveolar damage in the lung, as we have seen with many past viral illnesses of this kind. And that's exactly what I saw. I saw diffuse alveolar damage in the lung, which means hyaline membranes. And the pathologist in your audience would know what that means because we've all done autopsies when we were residents and we have, we've all seen that in you know various fatalities of various sure. kinds. Uh, so that's what we saw in case one. So that was pretty expected. In case two, which was the more unexpected case, it was a younger person with a history of myotonic dystrophy, so a risk factor for aspiration. Okay. Also was COVID positive post-mortem, so not before, right? So it was not tested before uh, death. Um, so the interesting finding in this patient was there was nothing to suggest viral um, pathology in the lung. Okay. So no, no airway inflammation, uh, no diffuse alveolar damage, no inclusions, nothing. It was just aspiration pneumonia, just an acute bronchopneumonia. Yeah. So, you know, uh, this is a kind of an outlier in the sense that it shows you some people during this pandemic will die of what they would normally die of, you know, without the COVID being involved. Right. But because they're COVID positive, it complicates the situation, the assessment of cause of death. I see. So in some cases, these patients who may be counted as COVID-19 positive deaths are dying with COVID, but not necessarily of COVID? 
Yes, and that's what, you know, I'm, of course, extrapolating from one case. But you can imagine that, right, Meredith? I mean, if you, if you think of people who, are, who have severe coronary artery disease or who have risk factors for stroke or who have advanced cancer or what, whatever their, um, you know, advanced underlying illness is, chances are that some of those people would have died during this period, even without COVID being involved. Sure. And so if you look at the Venn diagram of people who are infected with COVID, and the people who are, have severe illnesses, they overlap in some amount of cases. So some people with those severe illnesses also have COVID. And then it becomes, the question becomes, did they die of COVID or did they die of their pre-existing condition? And in this situation, uh, you know, you use your best judgment. And I think autopsies give you several layers of information deeper than what you could get from clinical information alone. Excellent. And it seems that what you described with patient one and the diffuse alveolar damage is similar to what was reported back in 2003, the SARS outbreak, which was also caused by a coronavirus. Is this a pattern of injury that you often see with pulmonary-related viral illnesses, or is this something that's more specific to coronavirus? Yes, I'm so glad you brought that question up because people tend to forget the past you know, because you're, this is such a, a, a huge sort of novel, uh, scary illness. And, 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 the, and it's certainly different in many ways in, in terms of clinical features and the infectiousness, the amount of people who are dying. But people forget that we have had, uh, you know, severe viral illnesses causing death before. So we have seen this with influenza. We have seen it with H1N1, with MERS, with SARS. And in all of those cases, uh, the vast majority of autopsy studies that were done at those times showed diffuse alveolar damage. So this is what you expect to see in patients who die of a severe viral illness. Now, um, I'll, anecdotally, I'll tell you, I, I reported two uh, cases of H1N1 when I was starting off as a faculty. This must have been 2010-11, also in the American Journal of ClinPath. And at that time, we reported it uh, because those cases also showed diffuse alveolar damage. And, you know, at that time I thought, hey, this is something unique, but actually it wasn't unique. Uh, you know, every person <laughs> who sees it at that time for the first time thinks that they're seeing something unique. Right. But this is actually quite predictable for a, for a severe violin. Very interesting. Live and learn. Mm -hmm. um, something else that I wanted to make sure that we addressed is I've seen some, some clinical reports and also uh, a more recent publication, I, I believe also came out in April, reporting this issue of thrombosis and an increased uh, thrombosis in patients with coronavirus. Did you see anything like that in these autopsy patients or have you seen it in your practice from other patients with coronavirus? That's really a million dollar question because the entire clinical community is talking about uh, blood clots and diffuse microthrombosis and so forth in COVID. So I'll give you a short answer and then a long answer. Okay. The short answer is we didn't see any significant thrombosis in our cases that we could attribute to COVID. That's the short answer. Okay. The long answer is that actually I've looked back at now um, all the pathology literature starting back from February 2020, since when the first paper came out from China, this was a postmortem biopsy of the lung, liver, and heart that mm -hmm. reported DAD, no thrombosis was reported. Okay. Then another paper came out from China in Journal of Thoracic Oncology, lobectomy cases, no thrombi were reported. Um, then our case, I'll, I'll 
come to that in a second. And then subsequently, a few small autopsy series have come out from Iran, from China, from, from the US. Almost none of them have reported any significant thrombosis. There's only one exception. Um, it's, I, I think it's from New York City that they have reported five cases, two limited autopsies and three skin biopsies. And in that, the skin biopsies did show some thrombosis. There are actually yes. pictures in that, in that paper. Yes. Um, so there is that report, but all the other ones, there is no mention of significant thrombosis. So you, you have to take this in context and wonder, is this a subset of cases or is this all cases? And certainly the evidence points to the, that this is not all cases. Okay. And in those subset of cases, we have to be very careful when we look at these pictures in pathology reports, what are they actually showing? Is it thrombi in the skin? Is it in the lung? Or is it in multiple organs? I have not seen a single paper so far uh, demonstrating multiple organ thrombosis, uh, despite the fact that you have thousands of cases. Yeah, so it's something to look out for. Okay, okay. Something for us to keep in mind, but we may not see it. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I wanted to make sure we touched on is uh, the type of protective equipment that was worn by the forensic pathologists and the assistants who perform these autopsies. Because in your article, you even include photographs of the sorts of protective measures that were taken. Would you be able to speak briefly about the special measures and why they're so important in COVID-19 cases? Yes, you know, from the pathologist's point of view, this is a very, very important question because the, the forensic pathologists and other people who do autopsies are exposing them to a potentially infectious, highly infectious setting. They're handling the lungs of these patients. They're cutting into them. This is risk um, potentially very different than even those who are in the ICU. You know, we don't know how much risk there is, but there is potentially a lot of risk. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is that there is at least the need for a negative pressure room, which they had in Oklahoma. Okay. So negative pressure ventilation and um, some sort of a, um, either an N95 mask or a PPAR, you know, that, that sort of face shield self-contained sort of apparatus that um, you see in the pictures. So that you at least have to have that plus your standard protective equipment, which is gloves, full gown, you know, shoe covers and the whole, the whole nine yards. You cannot go into, an, uh, into a COVID autopsy without having uh, you know, that kind of protection, you're, you're taking a risk. So I think uh, the, the people who are equipped with that kind of um, protect, personal protective equipment should do autopsies. I think there's a big advantage, but those who don't have access to that should probably uh, not or, or defer those cases. Okay, thank you. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed about your article that you would like to highlight for our listeners today? Um, well, I would say one thing is that it really shows you the, um, the power of um, rapid communication via Twitter. I briefly twitched, uh, you know, touched on this before, but it shows you the power of when you're in the middle of a pandemic and traditional methods take weeks or months to go through, you can through Twitter communicate with people in minutes, days, and you can very much speed up the you know, the process of dissemination of information and collaborating with colleagues. I'll remind the viewers that I've never met these three pathologists that I collaborated with. And it's exactly the same story as that with happened with the vaping epidemic when we wrote a paper on vaping. Wow. Is that I collaborated with people I'd never met entirely through Twitter. And that's how we were able to get cases to write these papers. 
it's a new world with the pandemic. Our, our lives will never be the same. And, and for you, Twitter has been an excellent way to get out some new lung pathology information into the literature and help us all. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Mukapaje. thank you for being part of our very first episode of PathPod Morning Edition. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Likewise, Dr. Pittman, I, I really love these um, questions. You're doing a great job and all the best to you for the future. Oh, thank you. Our guest today was Dr. Sanjay Mukopaje and his article entitled COVID-19 Autopsies, Oklahoma, USA is available in the April edition of the American Journal of Clinical Pathology. It seems that medical journals, the news, and our lives are consumed by the current health crisis. Of course, all of us are concerned about the physical health of our patients, family, and friends, but this moment also calls for an awareness of mental health. In the past week in New York City, two healthcare workers, an EMT and a physician, have been reported to take their lives. The stress of dealing with an onslaught of sickness and death can be unrelenting. We would be remiss to open a podcast dealing with the news of the day without addressing resources for those who may be struggling. The website, speakingofsuicide.com, has resources listed for those who need assistance personally or for those who have friends or family who are suffering and in need. Additionally, Several meditation and exercise apps are offering free or reduced cost activities for healthcare providers. You can also take your mind off of daily pandemic stress through the free arts programming being offered by museums, opera houses, symphonies, and theaters worldwide. For instance, the UK's National Theatre Live has a free play each week and right now is featuring Frankenstein with Benedict Cumberbatch. And finally, don't forget to reach out to friends and family who may be more isolated. We're all in this together. Thank you for joining us today. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future timely articles to be featured on our podcast, please let me know at Mayor Pitt on Twitter. That's at M-E-R-E-P-I-T-T. We'll be back with you again next week with more current pathology news on PathPod News Edition. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.